worship God. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Abba. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou art he who dost know our infirmities and our needs. But thou hast in Jesus Christ thine only begotten Son, experienced all that we experience, and are able to help us in time of need. We thank thee that we can always obtain mercy and grace from thee. And so, our God, in this confidence we come to thee, committing all our loved ones, all our hopes, all our yesterdays, todays, and tomorrows into thy loving and gracious hands. Guide us in thy wisdom and prosper us in thy service. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture is from the ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, verses 31 through 33. Romans 9. 31 through 33. And our subject, Manipulated Man. Romans 9, 31 through 33. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. These verses are from the last a false great chapter on the sovereignty of God in predestination. This chapter is perhaps one of the most disliked in all of Scripture. As a matter of fact, I heard a great deal about this chapter, more than I do in churches when I was a student at the University of California at Berkeley. In the English department, it seemed as though most of the professors felt it was their duty to take a swing at St. Paul as to what he had to say in Romans 9. They found it particularly offensive. They resented it. They continually criticized this doctrine. There is a reason for this. As a matter of fact, today the same condition prevails. You will hear next to nothing in most churches on predestination, and if it's mentioned, it's to explain it away and get rid of it. 
But modern novelists have a great deal to say about it. A very great deal. They attack it in the name of saving man. Let me read you a comment from the 13th chapter of a modern novel, where the novelist stops for a moment in the midst of a narrative, a novel that is not recommended reading, John Fowles, The French Lieutenant's Woman. And he says, I quote, You may think novelists always have fixed plans to which they work so that the future predicted by chapter 1 is always inexorably the actuality of chapter 13. Only one same reason for writing novels is shared by all of us, that is, novels. We wish to create worlds as real as, but other than, the world that is, or was. This is why we cannot plan. We know a world as an organism, not a machine. We also know that a genuinely created world must be independent of its creator. A planned world, a world that fully reveals its planning, is a dead world. It is only when our characters and events begin to disobey us that they begin to live. Now an evangelical scholar who claims to believe the Bible from cover to cover has quoted this passage of Fowles with great approval. In fact, he is so intensely favorable to this that he feels that here we have the gospel in miniature from an atheist. This man, Dale Jorgensen, has written and I quote, for foul, a world alive with characters who bear responsibility, makes free will a necessity. A novelist who refuses to program his characters frees them to assume a believable existence. Just as God willingly endows his creatures with a totally other life of their own. Now, of course, we must say that a novelist does program his character. He does predetermine what they are going to be. They are programmed and determined by his own character. So that if you took a particular incident out of the newspapers and gave it verbatim to a dozen novelists and said, write a novel about this, Here are the facts as fully as we have Every one of them would give you a different story and a different outlook on the characters and create different characters. Each would see it in terms of their own nature. There would be programming. There would be a determination. And the differences would be determined by their own nature. Now, Jorgensen, like Fowles, is really talking about God. 
And he says that God willingly endows his creatures with a totally other life of their own. Now, this is not derived from scripture. In fact, Jorgensen never in his study quotes scripture. But scripture says that God programs all his creation. Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. Over and over again, scripture emphasizes that God created all things, ordained all things, governs all things, and that there are no surprises in the universe, or in us, or in anything, to God. Thus, Jorgensen's attitude is not derived from scripture. It is not derived from observation. After all, he is not self-created. Now, Jorgensen, as he develops his thesis, the whole object of which is to strike at the doctrine of the sovereignty and the predestination of God, quotes another atheist, Matthew Lippmann, What Happens in Art. And Lippmann says, and I quote, the crucial point in the creative process is that at which the developing quality of the artwork becomes dominant, unquote. Now, Jorgensen doesn't want any of his readers to miss the implication, the theological point. And so he adds, and I quote, because he is so determined that we get his theological point. Recognition of this process is probably one reason why the awe-inspiring moment of man's creation, painted by Michelangelo on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, remains so breathtaking. In all literature and art related to the Judeo-Christian faith, this moment remains one of the ultimately aesthetic experiences. The moment when Creator God gives man breath, thought, choices, values, the eternity of his own, as well as the need to create. Skinnerian behaviorism has no adequate explanation for this self-contained entity. A human being who takes on life and becomes a creative personality under his own control. God willingly created man with this selfhood, even at the risk of human rebellion. Since fiction is created by people and is about human experience, it illustrates the integrity that God grants human personality, and it should also convey respect for this integrity. Seeing Michelangelo's vision of creation transposed from the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel into living creatures of God's design, we realize that it is impossible for us to manipulate people or impose upon them standardization and conformity. And we realize also that it is essential to bring them the love of Christ that frees man to conform to the real personality God intended him to possess." Unquote. Now Jorgensen sees man as a self-contained entity. That's his expression. The most you can say for this is that it's hyperbole. That's the kindest thing you can say for it. Every time any man eats, it's obvious he's not a self-contained entity. Every time we have any need for other people, 
Every breath we draw, we depend on the atmosphere around us. We are not self-contained entities. Only God is. And it is blasphemy to apply that which can only be applied to God, to man, as Jarvison does. And how ridiculous to say that it is impossible for us to manipulate people or impose upon them standardization and conformity. Well, anyone who's been married knows they can be manipulated. And for that matter, consider how extensively Inca civilization, the most totally socialistic civilization in all history, manipulated people, had them acting like puppets and loving it, depersonalizing them to a startling extent. An extent which I believe is no longer possible wherever a culture has had the impact of the gospel. Because it does free man from that kind of thing. But nonetheless it has been done. Moreover, the fact of hypnotism. That's manipulation. And it is interesting that the less faith a man has, the more he can be manipulated. And the unbelieving are so easily hypnotized that it is no longer legal to perform any act of hypnotism on television. You will put tens of millions of people under your spell immediately. This is a characteristic of modern man. The stronger a person believes in the sovereignty of God and that he is under God's control and that God is the predestinator, the less he can be hypnotized in anything that. Now Jorgensen says, God made man independent of himself. He's emphatic about this. He repeats this over and over and over again. And again, he is wrong. In the Bible, as a matter of fact, this is original sin. Man trying to be independent of God. And what Satan tempted man to do was to declare an independence from God, to be his own God. Jorgensen's view is flattering to man. And this makes man all the more prone to manipulation. During my student days, one of the most vivid experiences I had was when I was dressing in the locker room after a swim, hearing somebody on the other side of the lockers talking to several others. And what he was talking about, as crudely as possible, was the fact that he had taken this girl out and I knew who the girl was. He was mentioning names. He was very specific. She was a virgin and he had seduced her the previous night and he was bragging about it. And he went on to name a number of other girls whom he had seduced the same way. And the others were admiringly asking him how he did it. He was a rather sorry-looking creature. There wasn't too much to him to be attractive. And he laughed and he said it was easy. He flattered 
You make them think they are everything that in their heart they have ever wanted to be. Then when you proceed to seduce them, if they doubt your motives, they have to doubt everything you said about them. They don't want to doubt all the flattery you've given. They want to believe that it's true. And so it's very easy, he said, if you know how to do it right. Flattery as the means of manipulation. An age which most flatters man aims most at manipulating him. And humanism in religion or in atheism aims at flattering man. And any religion, whether it calls itself Christian or not, which abets this seduction of man, is humanism. And its origin is in the Garden of Eden when the tempter said, Ye shall be as gods, every man independent of God, determining for yourself, deciding for yourself, knowing for yourself what constitutes good and evil. Thus, for men like Jorgensen, in the name of Christ, their idea of salvation is the fullness of the fall. But man is a creature. And more than that, he is God's creature. So that not only man, but all the conditions, the possibilities, and the potentialities of man's life are God's creation. His fall and his salvation, everything in him, the very hairs of our heads, which are all numbered, are part of God's ordination. God alone has primary freedom. Man has a secondary freedom. He is a secondary cause, never a primary cause. Now, Paul, the novelist, says, we wish to create worlds as real as, but other than, the world that is or was. This is why we cannot plan. We know a world as an organism, not a machine. But Fowles is wrong. The world is neither an organism, it's not a plant or a creature, Neither is it a machine. It is a real creation, a planned world ruled by God's law. The sun has no independence to choose whether it will rise tomorrow or not. And man at his utmost in his evil, when he decided to crucify Christ, was fulfilling God's purpose. John, at that most awful moment in all history, declares they knew not that it was in fulfillment of the scripture. Man was exercising there his secondary freedom, but the absolute, the primary freedom was God. We can plan in this world because there is a plan in it. That's why we have laws in the area of science. 
That's why we can plan our future in terms of knowing that there are sequences of days and nights and years and laws of health and laws of being. You cannot plan in an unplanned world. An unplanned world is a dead or an impossible world. It could only exist in man's imagination. Now Fowles holds and Jorgensen, and I quote, a genuinely created world must be independent of its creator, unquote. And here is the fact. God created us separate from himself, but not independent. The old hymn says, I need thee every hour. And how true. We cannot exist apart from God. We have no independence of him. And it is sin, it is the fall that leads men to think they can be independent of God. Separate, yes, but not independent, totally dependent. We need him every hour, every moment, in every fiber of our being. Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist, is far more logical in his atheism. In his play, The Fly, he has Orestes declaring his independence of God. But Sartre, as a more honest man, because we must say the atheist is more honest than men like Jorgensen who claim to believe the Bible from cover to cover, and then say, if you please, I don't accept this because it doesn't square with my ideas of my freedom. That's wicked. We must believe all and when we say we pick and choose and this we're going to explain away because it grates our sensibilities, we are setting ourselves above it. Thus Sartre, as an atheist, shows in Orestes that he realizes that by declaring his independence from God, he thereby separates himself from himself, from other men, and from nature. And he has Orestes say in part when he renounces God that I am now for myself. I know it. Outside nature. Against nature. Without excuse. Beyond remedy. Except what remedy I can find within myself. But I shall not return under your law. I am doomed to have no other law but mine, nor shall I come back to nature, the nature you found good. In it are a thousand beaten paths, all leading up to you. But I must blaze my trail, for I am a man, and every man must find out his own way. Nature abhors man, and you too, God of God, the poor mankind, unquote. Sartre, at least, is honest. The world as it exists is God's world. 
And to renounce it is to renounce nature, for in nature are a thousand beaten paths all leading up to you, he says to God. He has to be foreign to himself because he is now foreign to God. This is the consequence as Sartre's and atheist sees it. How sad that so many in the evangelical churches refuse to see it. And to follow Sartre in his blindness rather than in his sight. And this, of course, is precisely what St. Paul in Romans 9 was writing about. He was writing to Israel. He begins the very next chapter, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. His whole point is that Israel has refused to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. They have created a religion based on man's independence and they've added God to it as an overall insurance policy. And he declares that Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Israel, he says, has been notable in its zeal and following after righteousness. And we must say, looking back, that Israel was more notable in its zeal for the Lord than the churches of our time, which claim to be evangelical are. But they did not attain to the law of righteousness with all their zeal. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Their efforts were false because they rejected Christ. They rejected God's justification in Christ, his atoning work, the resurrection. They did not seek the sovereign grace of God, but man's choice of grace and man's earned protection and passion. Israel was ready to submit to Christ on its terms, ready to make him king. Remember in John 6, that long and great chapter in which Israel, after the first miraculous feeding of the multitude, wanted to seize Christ and forcibly make him king on their terms. And he indicted them and abandoned them. Because their faith was first of all in themselves, not in Christ. Their hope was first in themselves and Israel, not in Christ. For them, sovereignty resided in man, not in God. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now here is an interesting fact. 
St. Paul here is quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah 28:16. He declares, Isaiah said, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, or it can be rendered, and your marginal notes no doubt will carry it, confounded, shall not be confounded. In the Hebrew, and in our King James, it reads, shall not make hate. And St. Paul changed the word in the Holy Spirit. Is there a difference here? Shall not make hate. Shall not be ashamed or confounded. No, because inspired of the Holy Spirit, St. Paul brought out another facet of the meaning of what Isaiah had said. What Isaiah said was this, that God in due time was going to bring forth Jesus Christ, the stumbling stone. That it was all determined, all established, all things are in God's hands. Out of him the battle bow. Out of him the corner, out of him the nail, out of him all things all together, Zechariah was to say later. Isaiah went on to declare that before him the nations are as nothing. He determines them all. Whosoever believeth on him shall not make haste. If something depends on me, I will be in a hurry to get it done. That's the meaning. If it's all on my shoulders, then I've got to hustle. I've got to do everything because it all depends on me. But Isaiah declares, whosoever believeth on him shall not make haste, because they know that the sovereign hand of God is there. And it is for us to obey. It is for us to do that which God requires of us in his word. But the results are in the hands of God. This makes a difference. There were in the past century a couple of very zealous and praiseworthy in some regards missionary movements. But they folded, unfortunately, because they did not see that point. They saw the commandment of God to go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But, they added to it, we must conquer the world for Christ in our generation. Now that was wrong. They made haste and fold. Because things didn't work out. 
They were right in seeing the mandates that came to them to go. They were wrong in saying, well, if we work hard enough, it's all going to happen now. It happens in God's time. The duties are out. The results are in the hands of God. And this was their defense. And they paid a price for it in disillusionment and despair. And the movements did not last but a generation. One of them was the student volunteer missionary movement. This is the point that Isaiah is making. And this is the point that St. Paul is reinforcing. We do not make haste. We do our duty. We are under orders and we march. But we do not make haste. We know that the results are in the hands of God and the duties are ours. And therefore we do what we do in the confidence that we shall not be ashamed nor confounded. We don't establish the timing or the results. We establish that which God summons us. To accept ourselves as totally God's creatures is thus not to make haste, but to go. To go knowing we are not ashamed nor confounded when we move in terms of His work. To accept ourselves as totally God's creatures is not to be a manipulated man, but to be a free man. Because then we are free of man's hand. And man's manipulation because we place ourselves in the hands of God.
then I'll speak the Lord. Stop speaking. And I do not stumble over that stumbling stone. That rock of faith. Jesus Christ. Very man of very man, but also very God of very God. Who could declare unto us that not a sparrow falls declared of himself also before Abraham was, I am. The modern knowledge. And all too many who call themselves evangelicals give us another view of man and of the world. up the newspapers and read, turn on the television and see, and we know how ugly a picture it is. Scripture gives us the God who is, and in him alone is our salvation and our peace our strength, and our victory. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that the government is upon thy shoulders, who doeth all things well. Give us grace and humility day by day to commit ourselves wholly in thy hands that we may be molded and shaped not by the hands of men, but by thy sovereign hand. Bless us to this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson. Yes.
pilots and the navigators. Now there is no question that they instill a great deal of discipline and order in these people and uh, in their own way have done some good, but there is also a very real element of blasphemy here. And they definitely do not hold to the sovereignty of God. They believe in free will in a primary rather than a secondary sense, which means that their hope of determining things is in man. And through their military discipline, they want to provide that manipulation. Whereas we believe we are to be in the hands of God, not of man. You see, you cannot escape predestination. You cannot escape it. It's one of those things that is an inescapable doctrine, like sovereignty. If you don't have sovereignty in God, you're going to have it in man. If you don't have predestination in God, you're going to have it in man or in the state. This is where it usually winds up. Some months ago, you may recall, about a year ago now, we had a Chalcedon report which dealt with modern predestination by the state. And as I pointed out on other occasions, scientists now will actually use the word predestination at times to describe their idea of the future. You cannot have a world of chance. So, if you don't have God, you're going to have to have predestination by man in the form of a scientific socialist state. This is why, let me remind you of that episode which happened to me, because I think it's one of the most telling illustrations that I could possibly cite. When I was in a forum conducted by Senator Clark Bradley in Northern California, the San Jose area, the school teacher came charging up afterwards. It was a full auditorium and not everybody could ask their questions. And she headed for me. She was mad. Oh, she was angry. Because I had been talking about Christian schools and about Christian concepts of freedom and of a free society and so on. And she charged me with deluding the people with what was a myth. She was a thoroughgoing atheist, and she very logically summed up her statement thus. In the modern world, freedom is obsolete. You cannot have freedom if you don't have God. You're going to have predestination that winds up in the environment or in man or the state. Now, of course, this is the conclusion of one of the greatest works of scholarship of our time by Charles Norris Cochran, who did not like what he found out in his study Christianity and Classical Culture. He studied the fact that here were the church fathers in the early church preaching God's sovereignty and predestination, whereas the Roman and Greek philosophers were preaching man's freedom. The Roman and Greek philosophy ended up for the view of man as totally determined by the state or by the environment or is heredity or something, whereas the Christians produced the concept of a free man in a free society. He didn't like the results of his uh, 
historical research, but he couldn't get away from it. Now, that's the paradox, but it is the fact. You either have it in God or you have it in something in this world. Sovereignty and predestination are inescapable concepts. So is hell. We've gone into that on another occasion, how if you deny God's hell, you're going to create a hell on earth somehow. And Karl Marx actually used the idea that we have to have a hell and designate a certain class as the demonic class because man requires these. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. sees determinism on the natural order, you see. And it is, say, in uh, heredity or in uh, natural forces, biological or physical forces working in you. Now, fatalism denies any freedom to man. In fatalism, you have no freedom. In predestination, you have a secondary freedom, you see. In other words, if you have a one-world philosophy, as in naturalism or uh, any kind of philosophy that is anti-Christian, you have a one-world situation, then you have only a single type of cause, and everything is fatalistic. You have no freedom. But when you have two worlds, the natural and the supernatural, then you have a primary causality up here and a secondary causality here. You have an absolute or primary freedom here and a secondary freedom here. That's what they're expecting as predestination. They have the same belief as we do. Yes, only it's fatalism in various forms. Now, fatalism is the term that comes out of ancient Greek philosophy, you see. But uh, in various forms, naturalistic determinism, dialectical materialism, uh, there are limitless terms that have been coined by the various schools, but they're all fatalism. So that you're nothing, you see. As a matter of fact, in some schools of the naturalistic mode, they go so far as to deny that you have consciousness. This is why, when you study psychology today, very few of the psychology textbooks will return will even refer to the word consciousness, and some will not refer to the word mind. They will speak of drives and things like that. You see, because if they speak of mind and consciousness and pursue that, it's going to lead them to something like the supernatural, and they don't want to do it.
result of the work of uh, Carl McIntyre uh, just about three or four years ago, and it's ironic, uh, he never was against it until he got into a quarrel with one of his professors who is no longer with him and whom you know, Dr. Francis Nigel Lee, who's now in Fairfax, Virginia. Now, uh, the whole point is, of course, when our Lord in the Great Commission, which he says is the only mandate to us, declared what the uh, commission of the church was, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. In other words, what does this say? The creation mandate to Adam is now fulfilled in me. Adam was to exercise all power under God. But now, having failed, Christ is the new Adam. By his victory over sin and death, now has that power. Go ye therefore, all ye who are members, and teach all nations. The nations themselves are to be brought under the dominion baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. All things. Our Lord said that he had come not to set the law aside, but to fulfill it. And fulfill it, as he used it in the Greek, as it appears in Scripture, means to put it into force. Now that's the creation mandate very clearly. It's always been so understood until just lately in the last four or five years because of this little petty fight, uh, suddenly this attack on uh, the creation mandate is over a heresy. But it is a heresy to attack it. Yes. Uh, what arguments would you use to uh, someone who asks uh, whether the Bible was, was it the complete revelation of sin? You know, what would you say that you know, no more can be added to the Christian Well, first of all, the question is, uh, if you didn't hear it back there, what arguments will you use with those who uh, refuse to believe that the complete, that the, the revelation of God, the Scripture, is complete? Well, first of all, throughout Scripture, we are told that God's revelation, as it appears to the prophets, is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Singular. The word is spoken of as a unity. Now, God declared through Moses that he was to tell Israel ye shall not this is Deuteronomy 4.2 ye shall not add unto the word which I command you neither shall ye diminish aught from it that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you again one word not to be added to nor diminished so you can take nothing away nor add to it. Now, 
words were added as long as the canon of Scripture was open. Words. But it still remained essentially one word, a unity, a seamless God. Now, at the end of Revelation, the last book to be written, For I testify unto every man that heareth the word of, this, of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the word of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, here suddenly you have a totally different usage from everything else in Scripture. Up until now, one word. But there are additions of words to that one word. Now suddenly, words cannot be added or taken. In other words, the one word is full now as far as its words are concerned. Do you see the point there? Moreover, Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and with Him and His coming, the revelation of God was completed. He declared His witness to His apostles and ended the canon of Scripture, and that's it. There is no warrant, therefore, from Scripture for any additional work. Now, those who claim to have further revelations actually do not give us something that is in conformity to this, but in contradiction to, to supply it. So that these pretended revelations and additions are really radical contradictions. So that in terms of logic, you would have to say there cannot be in any sense a revelation of the same God because there are contradictions. And then in terms of what Scripture declares, it is one word to which words could be added up to a point and then words could neither be added nor detracted. Well, our time is up. I'd like to remind you that this meeting, uh, Thursday, this Thursday, our meeting on the biblical doctrine of knowledge will not be held because I will not return from Mississippi in time Thursday evening. Our regular Thursday class will be a week from this Thursday. Let us bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and all.